Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our ultimate Sleep Number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. What's up, y'all? It's your boy David with Blackwell Renaissance. And I'm here today to tell you guys about Anchor. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it's the best place to make a podcast. Anchor is a free app that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone. Anchor also distributes your podcast across all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. You can also make money on your podcast with Anchor with no minimum listenership. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're looking to get started on your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. So, Rakim, I do want to go back to um, your entrepreneurial journey because I know we sure. we kind of get it, got into your finance and then went to banking. So what was that start like? What, when did you decide that I want to make something and then try to build something that's my own? Uh, that really that came out of reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. So, you know, Robert Kiyosaki spends a considerable amount of time talking about the cash flow quadrant and, you know, on the left side, being an employee or being an employee of your own business and the right side, being a business owner, owner of systems or an investor. And when I started to kind of dive into his material, I became very inspired to um, to get started on my own. And so I started LLC after going to one of his seminars with the intentions of getting involved with real estate investing. And that didn't work out the way that I wanted it to, simply because I didn't have the time or I didn't put the time into doing it um, effectively, learning the material and really just kind of pulling the trigger. So I had the entity. And as I grew in responsibility financially and I grew in responsibility at my day job, I realized, like I said, that I could monetize the skill set right, of financial coaching and, um, and sharing what it is that I know with other people. So then my LOC's focus transitioned into the speaking, the writing, and the coaching. But it's been a successive journey. So as I learn more, I add more. Um, and I've branched through entrepreneurship into the nonprofit world. And so two years ago, I co-founded a nonprofit that focuses on ending homelessness. And that's really where a lot of my focus is now. I mean, I definitely continue to push the book and, uh, you know, 
the speaking engagement and the financial coaching. But I think the nonprofit is huge because it's going to make an impact on people who are underrepresented. And it still allows for me to focus on my passion because one of our programs focuses on financial education. And so I can still share what is it I know, what is it I'm passionate about, but I can do it with a platform and to an audience that can benefit from that more so than, you know, somebody who has to choose between, you know, paying me for my services and buying a pair of Jordans. Hmm. Oh, okay. So let's get into that, that nonprofit. I don't think we've, have we talked, spoken to anybody? Uh, I don't believe anyone we know yeah. owns a nonprofit. What does that process look like actually starting a nonprofit and how does a nonprofit actually work? A lot of people, you hear a lot of people, they'll be like, okay, I want to do a nonprofit. I want a nonprofit. Because technically in the, the NBA and NFL are nonprofit organizations. So that's right. It's not necessarily what people think all the time. That's right. And I was one of those people before I helped co-found the organization. I was just like, why would I go down the nonprofit route? There's no money there. And then somebody shared with me, you know, the NFL is a nonprofit. The NBA is a nonprofit. Most colleges and universities are nonprofits. Most churches and other religious organizations are nonprofits. And these organizations are pulling in a lot of money. And so I think it's important to understand, too, for anybody that wants to start a nonprofit, that it can be a very profitable business. But what you have to do is you have to learn the game, just like anything else, right? And so I think um, a really relevant comparison would be taxes, right? So we understand the the tax code, or rather, we don't understand the tax code very often. And so that's why many of us look forward to the tax refund at the the beginning of the next year. Um, But when you really understand the tax code and understand that you're paying, you're overpaying your taxes and giving the government an interest-free loan, And then you start to understand what you can do throughout the year to decrease what is your liability from a tax perspective and really kind of keep more of your income by allocating it in different places. You're learning how to play the game. You're learning the rules. Same thing with the nonprofits. You have to allocate all of your profit towards the business. But that includes your supplies. That includes your salary and the salaries for the people that you you are employing. That includes, if you have a location, your physical location. That includes all of the services that help your business run. So electricity, Wi-Fi, whatever. That includes, it includes so many different things. And so in understanding that, you know, you can find ways to make it look like your business used all of the money that you generated. And so it's not profitable. Your business is not profitable because you're just cycling the income into different places. So once I started to understand that, I was like, all right, cool. Like I could do this. I'm not going to be a worker for the nonprofit making minimum wage. I'm going to be an executive for the nonprofit, probably pulling a, a, you know, a livable salary and definitely pouring back into the organization so that I can continue to draw a salary. But the focus really and starting a nonprofit wasn't to get rich off of it, right? It's a stream of income. The focus on a nonprofit was really to empower people who they don't have much. They don't have representation. We know that homelessness is a huge issue across the country. We know that a lot of organizations who are in the nonprofit space are focusing on rapid housing, um, but not long-term housing. And so you're taking people in off the street. You're giving them a place to live for a little while. 
you're giving them food, clothing, shelter, and then you're putting them back on the street. And then they're just recycling that process over and over again. So our focus strategically as a nonprofit is to this, that analogy of if you give a man a fish, he eats for the day. Mm-hmm. If you teach a man the fish, he eats for a lifetime. Teaching people how to fish. So our programs are more educational focused. We're not looking to uh, rapidly house individuals, but we are looking to connect individuals with services that they can benefit from, understanding what the uh, homelessness spectrum looks like. So that includes kids, that includes uh, kids in high school and and the elementary school and middle school. That includes kids in college who are homeless. They're living out of their car so they can go to school. That includes veterans. That includes people with mental disorders or disabilities. Um, That includes people who are impacted by drug abuse or alcohol abuse. And then understanding, too, that we need to address the stigma associated with individuals who are homeless, right? Because I mentioned I grew up in New York, and I frequently mention this when I talk about the origins of the organization, because I became desensitized to homelessness because I saw it everywhere. So I learned to when I saw somebody standing on the corner asking for change to look through them, to look around them. And because it's just like, you can't help everybody. I don't have the money to help everybody. And then you hear of those one-off situations where people are pretending to be homeless to prey on the good hearts of other individuals. And so it's just like, oh, you know, you just, I don't have anything to give, so I'm not going to address them. I'm not even going to acknowledge them. And that's the wrong mentality to have. These people are people like everybody else. And so going back into the, the financial um, or financial empowerment hat, we think about how many people don't have $1,000 saved, right, for emergencies. <laughs> How many people who don't have any kind of savings for emergencies, but they have all of these expenses. And we're about to see this happen, right? With the coronavirus shutting down businesses. How are they going to pay their mortgage? How are they going to pay their car note? How are they going to pay their debts? Are they going to end up homeless? And so most Americans are a paycheck or two or three away from being homeless. And so that's why it's so important for me to make sure that we destigmatize what homelessness looks like, because that could be you. You know, that could be your best friend, that could be your cousin, that could be your mom. And we've been kind of creating a buzz and creating more awareness around that. My strategy personally, as it relates to building out a platform and growing my brand as an individual, is to eventually get to a place where I can say, all right, I've arrived here where people are paying attention to me. Now let me funnel their attention to the organization. And our organization is still new. Um, We'll have two years this year. And um, there's a lot that we're working on. There's a lot that we've been able to accomplish. We've done a few events. We're, we're looking at partnering with other organizations in the same space. But we have a little bit of flexibility because we're not just addressing homelessness in terms of a housing or rapid housing perspective. We're addressing at-risk youth. We're addressing education. We're addressing, I mean, I think we're broad enough that we could address trafficking, right? Because People who are homeless are more likely to end up going into a trafficking environment. We can address uh, health advocacy because a lot of people can't pay their bills, their health care bills, end up homeless. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And so there's a lot of room for us to play around in. And I think I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I'm very excited about addressing this social cause because it's something that, you know, people in their hearts will resonate with. And like, man, like I've had people walk up to me and like, 
you know, I was homeless for a certain period of time and, you know, I didn't know about these services or I didn't know about this and you would never know. And so people carry a shame associated with that too. Either knowing somebody who's homeless, having been impacted by being homeless, or just not wanting to, you know, associate with people who are homeless. And it's unfortunate. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to soften the blow when we talk about uh, homelessness. Hey, hey, that's, hey, that's, that's beautiful. Bro. I commend you for that. Hey, one, bro. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely an undertaking that more people need to take more seriously for certain. I just want to dive right back into the nonprofit, though. Could you explain, yeah. like, what does that look like to actually set it up? Where like do you, process yeah, of where, setting up, like, where do you go for that? 501-3C is the name of it. Yeah. So uh, the beginning stages of the process is very similar to setting up any LLC or corporation, right? You just file the paperwork with the state, come up with a name, you get the EIN. You're filing as a corporation with a nonprofit. So I think that's important to highlight because a nonprofit technically is not my, I'm not the owner. Once you file as a corporation, now you're like you're a shareholder or, you know, you're part of the board. In the state of Connecticut, though, and I can only speak to the state of Connecticut's process, you need three people to be on your board. And then you follow, you follow paperwork with the state. They get back to you. They let you know whether or not you're approved. You need bylaws. You need um, an operating agreement, which uh, the operating agreement is somewhat the bylaws. It's just. It's the same as starting a regular business. It's just a lot more paperwork. With the 501c3, so that's tax-exempt status, you have to make sure that what your nonprofit is focused on falls into a specific category. So there is, I'm trying to remember this, there's charitable organizations, there's religious organizations, I believe there's educational organizations. There's a bunch of different categories. And based off of what your services that you're going to be providing are, you'll classify as one of those categories. And based off of what your services are providing, you'll file for the 501c3 status. That's a very long document. (laughs) It's a long document and it's expensive to file, um, very tedious. A lot of people will just throw the money at an attorney and have them work through it just because if you file it incorrectly, if there's one mistake, they'll send it back to you. There's one error that they won't accept it. We've decided that we're going to go through it ourselves just because there's cost savings. And um, between the both of us, there's three of us, but there's the two co-founders. Between the both of us, we feel like we can address each one of those line items and have it in and get a response that's favorable. Once you get the 501c3 status, game on. You're not paying taxes on you know, the things that you're purchasing. So if you have to buy food for your events, you have to buy supplies. A lot of organizations are very lenient to even giving you discounts on regular products. So in addition to not paying taxes, now you're buying for pennies on the dollar certain items that you would be paying full price for. So, you know, I interact with other individuals who've started nonprofits and, you know, they share stories and offer support and kind of helping us get established. And I remember one individual said she was doing an event where she needed to buy, she was providing school supplies for kids. And she partnered with her local Walmart and they were um, not only did they not pay taxes on um, backpacks, but she was able to get backpacks for like cents off of, you know, what would be the whole dollars. I don't remember the exact figure, but let's say the backpacks were a dollar. She was paying 50 cents on these book bags for each one. So definitely there's definitely um, an impact there from a financial perspective. 
I love it. Gems for people. I know a lot, a lot of people really always, I know people that always want to know, man, how I start a nonprofit, how I start a nonprofit. So I appreciate that. Now, there was another thing I did want to get into with you. It was something that uh, we had posted on our Instagram story. Yeah. Yeah. I was about talking to it on the podcast. And that was the perspective of us as black people of other black businesses. So could we get into that a little bit? Definitely. I think it's a topic that's important. Because um, there's this reluctance, I think, for us to do business with each other um, based off of an experience here or an experience there. And I really like the idea of group economics, or rather not the idea, but the practice of group economics. I can't think of another group of people who don't participate in it but us. Um, (laughs) And so um, there's a book that I read. And I was reading it as I was writing my book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome um, by Dr. Joy DeGroy. And she talks about basically, she did her thesis on post-traumatic, basically the impacts of the PTSD-like impacts of slavery on Black people in this country. And how since slavery, we've never gotten a break and we've never gotten the necessary healing mentally, emotionally, spiritually and financially that we should have in order to progress. And so a lot of our behaviors are coming out of PTSD-like reactions to those things. And those behaviors are generational. So we teach our children those behaviors and the people around us those behaviors as it relates to engaging with one another, as it relates to doing business with one another, as it relates to competition instead of cooperation or collaboration. And and so when you guys posted that, I was just like, oh, man, we definitely got to touch on this because I think I've been fortunate in the last year or so to um, stumble upon, you know, like you guys and, and others on Twitter and Instagram who have a similar vision, a similar mission in empowering black and brown people to understand, first of all, this is possible. We can participate in this. And then by demonstrating this is what greatness looks like, or this is what the path to greatness looks like, right? Because we're all accomplishing different things in our own right, but we're not done yet. And so, you know, I see a lot of engagement around those kind of posts, but a lot of questions too, a lot of doubt too. Um, and you guys have posted some of my content a couple of times. And, you know, when I look through the comments and I see people trying to discredit what was said, Bro. instead of acknowledging, you know, it's just like, man, like you, you're going to take time out of your day to discredit something that somebody did, not something that somebody's talking about, but something that somebody did. Right. And I feel like that comes like from what you was talking about earlier, that PTSS. It's oh, like yeah. them habits that was taught down. They just got those self-limiting beliefs that like, man, he looked like me. It's no way possible he could, he do, could that. do it. Yeah. That, that's like the biggest mental roadblock that we've seen in this whole thing with Black Wealth Renaissance, we'll see people that are following us and we're thinking like, okay, you know, you're following us, you read what we about, you see it, you love it. Why are you doubting this if you follow this? Like, this is us trying to help you. This is us trying to give you these examples and you just don't want to see past it. Yeah, this ego, I can't think of anything else that it could be as ego, insecurity. There's a term that Dr. DeGroy uses in the book that's called vacant esteem. So not even self-esteem or a lack of self-esteem, but it's vacant esteem. It's that it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist that it's possible for us to do 
It doesn't exist that we deserve that. It doesn't exist that we're entitled. So, you know, if I could go all the way back to the beginning of our interview, I'm talking about banking, right? And people who are coming in with money and they understand how much money they have and what the impact of the money that they have in that bank has on the bank's operations, they're very confident. They're coming in there too confident, right? Confident enough to ask for coin that hasn't been printed yet, (laughs) right? (laughs) But we will go in and we will accept the overdraft fee or two or three because we like, oh, well, I can't ask for it. And so one of the things that I've been learning and, and really implementing over the last couple of years is ask. Like, if you don't ask, you'll never get it. And I think that we just were afraid to ask a lot of times. And so we're afraid to ask in environments that are non-Black establishments, right? Asian, uh, white. We're afraid to ask. But when we go to Black establishments, the first thing that we're going to do is ask, right? (laughs) We're like, well, what about that discount? What about that friends and family discount? Or your prices is too high, right? And so we won't give the same level of respect. And so, you know, assigning value is important. And, And I think in the work that I do and the work that any of us do, there's a price point. Assigning value is important because if you don't place value on it, somebody else won't. But also understanding too the importance or rather that there is more than just monetary currency, right? The bartering of goods and services is an exchange. And so if I'm coming into an environment where I have a skill set or I have a product that could benefit you, but you also are coming into that same environment with a product or a skill set that can benefit me, Why do we need to pay each other when we can just exchange what our product or services? And so I think that bartering, I know that bartering was a big part of our behavior, Black people's behavior previously, but we got away from that too. And so I think we're in this limbo, and I talk about capitalism a lot. We're in this limbo where we won't embrace capitalism, but we also don't want to embrace a bartering system. And so now we're losing while we're sitting here trying to figure out, well, what system do we want to embrace? And everybody else is winning, right? And there are people who are embracing the bartering system. There are people who are embracing group economics. There are people who are embracing capitalism all at the same time, and they're flourishing. And we're just stuck. And so, you know, I think that is kind of an undercurrent of the work that I do. I mean, definitely all, everything that I put out is for people that look like me, but I don't advertise it that way because anybody can benefit from it. And maybe that's a takeaway for me. Maybe I need to kind of restructure my strategy around, you know, who I'm sharing with. But the reality of the situation, you know, going back to your post, is that Black people are not doing business with you, right? White people are doing business with you. White people are buying your stuff. And so you have, you know, I'm going to use me as an example. Somebody who started a nonprofit, delivered a TED Talk, wrote two books, Right giving out content on something that they don't know, they'll pay for it. And they'll write me a review about it without being asked. But somebody who looks like me and is just like, well, how did he do a TED Talk? And he wrote a book. And, you know, he's doing this, this, and this. I'm just going to ask him for a favor. I kid you not. I get like every so often in my inbox, oh, I have a quick question. I want to pick your brain. Or I want to ask you this randomly. I don't know these people. Just randomly. And then usually the question is around what stocks should I buy, especially lately? What stocks should I buy? And I'm like, I can't answer that question. And I'm like trying to balance my response because I don't want to seem like an asshole, right? I don't want to be like, oh, nah, like we can't talk. But I'm literally not qualified to tell you what stocks to buy. I can tell you that you should invest in the stock market, right? 
but I can't tell you to buy stocks or what stocks to buy and then they get frustrated. Yeah, like I think that's one of the biggest things with like we get that question a lot. Yeah, like bro, we cannot tell you that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I go as far as to say anybody that does tell you that you shouldn't take the credibility if they're answering your question or frip like that, because there's really so many factors that go into advising somebody on where they should allocate their money. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm going in, somebody comes to ask me, what stock should I buy? And I don't ask them, what's your income? What's your obligations look like? What's your risk tolerance for, you know, the market fluctuations because they're going to happen? What kind of of, uh, investment vehicle are you looking to buy in, whether it's a a regular brokerage or a retirement account uh, or tax deferred retirement account? If I'm not asking all of those questions and I can't say, oh, well, you know what? Here's a, a intelligent group of stocks for you to choose from that fits your profile versus somebody coming up to me and say, hey, what stock should I buy? And I say, oh, you should buy Apple. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, people like to take the the personal part out of personal finance a lot of the oh, time. Oh, yeah. just, oh, it make money, so it gotta work for me. Right. I look right. at it as like a shoe me. Like shoes, you have different widths and everything like that. It might look cool, might look good on his foot. But uh, once you put that shoe on, <laughs> foot, it might not fit the same. It might be a little bit it too might, narrow. It might be a little wide. It might right. be a little bit too wide for you. So you actually you gotta sit down and actually size out your foot or size out your personal finance, your personal, your finance and structure. You got to actually just sit down and really just spend some time with it, though. That's the personal part. You got to be personal with it and say, okay, this is what I plan to accomplish and this is how I'm going to accomplish it. Definitely. And I can't place all the blame, too, on our people and the mentality that we have. And there's a lot of factors that influence that. Mm -hmm. But also looking to and working out of financial services, there is a blanket best practices, right, that they put out there. You should be saving. So get a savings account. You should be investing in retirement. So get a retirement account. But they're trying to make money, right? They're selling products. So, of course, they're going to make it seem like a blanket approach. But again, you know, to your point, personal finance is personal. And so, you know, the difference between going to Macy's and getting, you know, a suit that's, you know, just not tailored. And getting a tailor suit, the way that it looks is going to be different. It's going to look way better if you get it tailored. And that's not to say that you can't wear the suit that's not tailored, right? And so people are blindly accepting what's considered best practices out there. And so we talk about the title of my book, Financially Responsible. Like I titled it that way because the whole point of the book is to challenge what is considered status quo as it relates to personal finance. So you have people who are, you know, talking about the need to. I don't know. There are different schools of thoughts. Here's a good example. In my book, I talk about credit, right? And the average American has 2.7 credit cards, right? Three credit cards, we'll call it. This is a fact. This is a statistic that was circulated in the banking industry and that we use to determine whether or not we should, or I should be careful with what I say here, because not that we should, because we should be offering credit cards to anybody that there's a need for. But if a customer walks in and has zero credit cards and the customer doesn't get a credit card or, you know, is not interested in credit cards, why don't we offer that to them? They should have a credit card. There's a need there. At least that's the mentality. Another customer comes in with five credit cards and we're having the conversation. So, oh, you know, you could benefit from a new credit card. And Oh, I have five credit cards. How do you combat that? They have more than what is the average. And so a lot of banks, they get in trouble because they try to disguise the fact that there's a 
they're in a sales environment. And so they're pushing products. But the reality of the situation is they're in a sales environment and they're pushing products. Um, so I talk about my credit cards and I'm like, well, the average American has three. I have like close to 10. Most people will consider that irresponsible financially, right? Why do you have so many credit cards? But I'm adhering to a strategy that works for me personally. I'm not telling you to go out and get 10 credit cards. I'm telling you to build credit. And what that looks like for you is very different than what that looks like for me. And just a lot of different examples like that. So, you know, you hit the nail on the head there when you said that uh, personal finance is, is definitely personal and it's a unique fit to each individual in their circumstances. Man, good gems, good gems. My brother came in and spent some fire. Um, there's one more, one more section I want to cover before we move to the last section, and that's you writing your book. When did you begin writing your book? Like how long after you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and you know, you've been in the industry and you were comfortable, when did you begin writing? What was that like whenever that mindset, whenever you're like, you know what, I want to write a book. So I'm thinking of a million things right now. So this book that I just put out, that is my second book. My first book I wrote the year before 2018, and the mindset going into that was not that I was creating a product for public consumption. So I was going through a really rough time. I was experiencing depression. I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and um, just losing enthusiasm around things that made me happy. And a close friend of mine at the time said to me, you know, you have a remarkable story. Why don't you start writing it down? That might help. And so I flew over to, uh, I spent seven days in Barcelona and seven days in Casablanca, Morocco, with the sole intention of writing. And that's what I did. I just sat there and I wrote. Um, and getting, you know, words on a page was very therapeutic for me. And as I'm reading through the transcript, I'm realizing that there are teachable moments in what it is that I'm sharing. And so that's when I decided to share with other people. And so I put something together. I put it on Amazon. The second book, I finished much quicker because there was a strategy I knew where I wanted to end up before I started, and I knew what impact I wanted to have. So it wasn't just kind of like, I think I'm going to write this down. I think I'm going to write this down and watch where it forms. It's like, no, very strategic. Before I even started writing the book, I had the title. I knew what the impact is that I wanted to have based off of the title. I knew what the impact was based off of the imagery that I used. And I knew what the flow of the content was going to look like. So that process took... I think I started the process in March, and then there was a few delays. The book was supposed to come out sometime in August, but the book didn't come out until December. And that was just, there were delays based off of strategy and how we were going to deploy it. There were delays based off of marketing. There were delays based off of, you know, different pieces that, didn't, that weren't delivered on time. But ultimately, I'm happy with when the book was delivered, because I happened to publish the book the day before I did a TED Talk. And so it was just kind of like, in terms of just like two colossal accomplishments happening at the same time, you know, somebody's watching a TED Talk and they're like, I want to learn about this person. Let me type his name into Google. And then my book pops up, both books pop up. It's like, oh, he just wrote a book too on the same topic. Let's find out more about him. And so for me, it was huge from a marketing perspective to be able to do both in a very short period of time. But the buildup to that process, that, that definitely was a time investment. And I, I like that you mentioned that the book pulled up. It made me think about something we mentioned when we talked with Ash Cash. A book adds validity to you, too. So, like, even, like, they seen that TED Talk and they may have been wondering about you. Now they got that book, too. It's like, oh, this dude legit, bro. He got two books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
Did you uh, self-publish or you went through a company? I self-published both. And anybody that I think is out there looking to write a book, I would recommend they self-publish too. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay. I love it. Uh, you do the Amazon thing? Yes. The first book, I, I didn't solely publish on Amazon, but the second book, I definitely did. And that was strategic. That was for credibility, right? Because the first question that people asked me when I wrote my first book was, is it on Amazon? And I'm like, yep, sure is. Go get it. But also just the ease of the tools that they provide. Now, publishing through Amazon, there's a downside to that and that they take commission based mm-hmm. off of each purchase that's done. So you're not getting all of your money. But the upside of self-publishing is that you maintain the rights to all your stuff. Whereas with publishing companies, based off of the research that I've done anyway, there's definitely an upfront investment financially. And then you're responsible for marketing, but they own the rights to your stuff. And so a lot of times anyway, they own the rights to your stuff. And so you end up in a situation down the road where you're having a fight for your ownership back because they're a publishing company. And I just... You know, we talk about ownership a lot. We talk about ownership through stocks. We talk about the ownership through real estate. You know, for my intellectual property, like I want to maintain that ownership. If I decide that I want to pull a book off of Amazon and put it somewhere else, I could do that. Mm-hmm. If I decide that, you know, I want to, you know, keep it on Amazon and put it somewhere else, I could do like I have so much flexibility. I don't have to ask anybody for permission. And I value that. I value that now. And I'm sure that I'll value that 10, 20 years into the future. Sure. Cool. Y'all got anything for the last one? Nah, I, man, my brother really came through uh, with, with this great, great episode. Definitely was looking forward to we can uh, Yeah, we could pivot to the last segment of the show. Uh, so, Rakim, the last thing we got for you is we want to ask you what's on your timeline? What's something that you've seen on social media? Anything that you just want to talk about? Like, could be anything. Man, there's a million things on my timeline. <laughs> Definitely this coronavirus is going crazy. Yeah, I've been kind of making light of the situation lately. There was one thing that stood out to me, and I think it's relevant to, you know, the general theme of what we talked about today. And that I saw, and I think I tagged you guys in the post, actually. I saw somebody had posted that if you have a large credit line, that you should liquidate it now, that you should pull that money out now. And, um, and I wanted to throw that out to some people, you know, in the, in the space, finance Twitter, <laughs> and say, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And it was interesting dialogue. I mean, for the most part, everybody said, no, you shouldn't do it. And if you are going to do it, then you definitely should be investing it. But there should be some strategy behind that. Yeah. And I'm one that has significant limits on my credit line. So for me to liquidate now and then you know have to worry about interest and worry about the fees and worry about paying it back eventually, that would be unwise unless I knew that I was going to take that investment and I was going to double it, triple it or whatever. Yeah. But um, that was something that really stood out to me. I don't have too much like drama stuff on my timeline, so I can't, I can't <laughs> offer anything juicy. <laughs> we stay away from the drama. Yeah. <laughs> and just to kind of go with like that liquidating lines of credit, I think that's something, that's definitely a strategy some people could look into. Like, oh yeah. Like you said, you need to have a definite plan because these credit cards going to lick you with that interest. Whenever oh, yeah. all this stuff come over and blows over, I don't know about, about you, but my shit, my credit cards, they're trying to get me on something like that. They they hitting me for at least 15%. Yeah. 
And like, if you ain't going to get that 15% back in that investment, it don't make sense. So here's the thing too. And, and this is the reason why I threw it out there. So I get, and I think most people do, I, they just don't pay attention to it. Every so often your credit card will be running a promotion for 0% interest, right? And you could do a balance transfer. You could transfer into your account. What also comes with that is they'll send you checks in the mail. So those are checks that you can draw off of your credit line. So Chase just did it for me. I have a Chase Slate card. They send me checks in the mail. I can have 0% interest for, you know, I don't remember what the term is, maybe 12, maybe 15 months on the money that I pull from these checks. So I could write myself a check for whatever under my limit that I want to take out, deposit into my account and have that money available liquid and not pay interest on it for the 12 months. The problem is after those 12 months, the interest rate goes up, like you said, right? So it's not 15, it's close to 30. You have 26%, 27%, 29% that you're paying in interest on whatever is left over. And so again, you know, if you can constructively use that money in a short period of time and get the return back before you have to start paying back, then it's a phenomenal strategy, right? If I want to go buy a house and I need $10,000, I could pull that off my credit card at 0%. If I could flip the house before that and pay it back, I made money off of somebody else's money. But yeah. it's dangerous to, dangerous to offer that as an option for people because people see all the benefits associated with doing this, but they don't take into account the risk associated. And so then they execute, they pull the trigger, and then they're caught up in a situation where they have to pay all that money back and they have to pay it with interest. So I very likely will use that strategy at some point, but like you said, very strategically. Uh, I have used that strategy in the past, <laughs> but I just, I'm careful because I, I think in some circles I'm regarded as a thought leader or a subject matter expert when it comes to personal finance. And there are people out there who I don't even interact with. And I've been learning this, you know, a lot more lately. There's people out there who I don't interact with, who look at my content, who swear by my content and never say a word to me. And mm-hmm. so if I put something out there that misguides or misleads someone, it's irresponsible on my part. And in some degree, you know, for my personal conscience anyway, I feel guilty for the decisions that they make based off of the lack of clarity that I provided. And so I'm very careful with what I share and with what I debate. But that said, too, I think a lot of other people who are in the space is like, well, you know what? It's better to be safe than sorry. Don't even flirt with that. Don't even play with the temptation. And for most people who are not, you know, financially educated, I think that's the best practice. I think that's just kind of a blanket best practice until you get to a place where you know you can kind of navigate and maneuver in the space effectively. Especially now where, you know, people's incomes are stopping, like their whole income is stopping. If they're working at a retail, if they're working at the Apple store and Apple shut down all their stores across the country, well now, you know, how are they going to pay that back? And so, yeah, it might provide temporary relief, but what happens when that 12 months elapse? God forbid we're still in the same situation. Now you have compounded interest. Then that toilet tissue might come in here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. I pray we're not in that. But we're going to. Yeah. Before we wrap up the episode, my brother, can you tell the people where they can find you at on Instagram, Twitter, any other social media platforms? And some of the other things that you got to offer and where they can kind of find those things. Yeah, so I'll start with my website first, but everything is my name. So my website is www.rockhemsabri.com. That has links to me as a financial coach, me as a speaker, just more information, me as a nonprofit leader. 
and it actually links to my nonprofit website. My Instagram and Twitter are my name as well. So it's Rakim Sabri, uh, R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. And then my nonprofit Instagram and Twitter is an extended hand. So it's A-N-N extended hand, all one word. And like I said, we're ramping up. So very small following right now, inconsistent posting, but we're getting there. Hey, we, you know, we got to show the love on the yeah, BWR on that one, man. Yeah. That's a beautiful initiative. So, you know, you already know. Yeah, but we got you. Rakim, we appreciate you coming on the show, my brother. Came through and dropped these gems on the people. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up with a couple little housekeeping items. As always, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the podcast. Growth's always great. Continue to like, share, subscribe, share with your friends, leave a review. Uh, it helps us grow the show. Y'all check out the website, blackwellrenaissance.com. Oh my God, look at this guy. <laughs> look at this dude. Oh, man. <laughs> Come on, man. This dude out throwing at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like a bad child. <laughs> man, we're going to finish the episode before we get on him. But, um, and I also do want to speak about our Houston event. We were not able to, uh, well, by the time y'all hear this, we weren't able to execute our Houston event with all this chaos that's going on with the coronavirus. We just want to keep the large uh, crowds away and just kind of help out some people who might feel uneasy about it. So if you did purchase a ticket, we'll be hosting a virtual event where we have our same speakers. Um, they'll be covering the same topics. And if you did purchase a ticket, you'll have access to the uh, replay. But if you did purchase a ticket and you didn't want it, we'll be issuing our refunds. So um, and I think that's all we got. Yes, that's about it for me. Kelly, you got anything? Yes, sir. Well, on that note, this This is Blackwell from the Sun signing out. Peace. I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is run money marathon. I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is run money marathon. Do five years of this and be a millionaire and go on do what I want to do, have kids, go live my chip and joy in a game life out here in Texas or struggle for next week. The choice is yours. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to normalize black wealth and share helpful resources and tips we believe will be useful in attaining and maintaining generational wealth. Please feel free to rate and comment on our podcast. We would love to hear all feedback you have. Now, enjoy the show.
Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Your boy, David Bellar, one-fourth of the Black Wealth Renaissance, checking in with my co-hosts. Fellas, how y'all feeling? What's good? What's good? It's your boy, Jalen, another fourth of the Black Wealth Renaissance, checking in. Man, I'm feeling good. We're just getting off the road. Mm. Non-stop, bro. We just had a, our first speaking engagement. Turn uh, up. And it was really, really dope. I'm great that we, well, I'm so happy that we had this opportunity. We have, once again, y'all, another very special episode for y'all. On this episode, we have a brother out of Connecticut right now, but from New York. He's a personal finance expert, the author of the book, Financially Irresponsible, an investor, just all around dope brother, Mr. Rakim Sabri. Rakim, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to hear you guys are doing good, too. I'm trying to stay out of the way of the coronavirus as well. <laughs> yeah, man. That's been that's been some crazy, crazy shit all week, bro. Oh, man. From the canceling of the NBA to, like, they closed schools down here for, like, a full month. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Hey, they closed Disney. They closed Disney. Disney don't close. <laughs> that's crazy. But, yeah, man, we appreciate you coming up on the show. Or Kim, the way we normally pop this off. We always ask our guests if they can like introduce themselves to the following and give them a brief background on you and how you got started. Sure. My name is Rakim Sabri. I've been working in financial services for going on 10 years now. Um, started in the industry by accident, but I think it's always been a focus of mine to move away from what is poverty, living in poverty, but certainly a poverty mindset and the more I learned and the more I grew in the space, the more I became encouraged not only to better my position in the world, but to better the position of people that look like me, that experience similar to what it is that I experienced growing up. Oh, I like it. So we were just talking off camera and you said, you know, you kind of got the way you got your start is you went into the banking sector. So what did that look like for you whenever, you know, you move into Connecticut trying to land your first job and you land your first job in the banking area? It was random, to be honest, and random in that a close friend of mine texted me at two o'clock in the morning telling me that he knew I was looking for a job and, you know, have I ever thought about banking? Previous to working in banking, I had done, you know, different retail jobs. I worked in supermarkets. I worked in, you know, retail stores. I worked in just odds and ends. So I never really had a career-focused role. Um, so my first job in banking, I was a part-time teller. I was 21 years old and uh, I knew nothing about banking at all. I had a bank account. I had my first bank account when I was 16. But at that point in time, I didn't know anything about credit. I didn't know anything about saving. didn't know anything about investing. And so um, getting into the financial services space helped me understand what products are out there that kind of complement your financial intelligence but also how to talk to those products and the benefits of those products when you're dealing with consumers. So as I grew within banking, I interacted with a lot of different people who either had money or didn't have money or were in the process of getting money. And in interacting with the different people in that spectrum, I was able to start to learn how people manage their money from poverty perspective and how people manage their money from a wealth perspective. And how do you approach those people and selling them a product that's specific to right your industry. So if I'm offering somebody who is more on the affluent side a credit card, I need to be able to speak to that credit card's benefits intelligently, or they'll eat me alive. 
versus talking to somebody in a similar kind of conversation, talking to somebody who's coming from a poverty environment or a poverty mentality. I know certainly when I was growing up, when the topic of credit cards came up, people would say, don't get one, stay away. And so you have people coming into the banks and you're trying to sell them a credit card and they have that mentality like, oh, no, I can't. I'm not messing with credit. And so how do you get over how do you overcome that objection and get over the reluctance to participate in a credit product without setting somebody up for failure? Right. Because then you get them to buy into getting this credit card and now your hands are clean. Right. Because you got the sale. But now they have to manage that credit throughout the course of, you know, the rest of their life. and so. Just everything in between. I mean, I've referred people to a financial advisor so they can set up retirement accounts or just regular brokerage accounts. I've referred people to lenders so that they can get pre-qualified for their property. And just like I said, everything in between. So just to dive a little bit deeper in that, what was that like whenever you first really had that aha moment whenever you're like, you know, this is something I really need to deep dive in and I need to understand who I'm working with. Like you said, people from our background, I need to understand how to speak to them and how to actually get them in places where they can be successful versus knowing the language of a more affluent person. There's there's a variety of factors I think that influence that. I think one is location, right? So I live in Connecticut and I think most people have this impression that all of Connecticut is rich. And that's certainly not the case, but there are areas that are very wealthy. And so the branch, I, when I was working in branches, I, I worked in, I think, three different locations. And all of those locations had a very um, kind of dominant demographic that would come in. And so you had, you just, you, you know, your normal working class people coming in. And this location was across the street from a mall. So somebody would stop in on their way to shop or on their way from shopping. Then I moved into a location that was... Um, it's considered mass affluent. The neighborhood was definitely an affluent neighborhood, but it was just kind of on the side of the road. So people stopped in on their way to work. You would see a lot more professionals, doctors, lawyers, accountants, those individuals coming in. And then the last location that I worked in was in definitely a mass affluent environment, like the neighborhood. The kids were coming in, having been taught by their parents or having inherited from their parents. Again, professionals like doctors, lawyers, accountants coming in, um, students coming in, students coming from different countries coming in. And as I switched location, another factor I think that influenced me was my position. So when I started, I was a part-time teller. Mm-hmm. But as I grew, I went into a sales capacity. And as I grew, I went into a supervisor capacity. And as I grew, I eventually ended up in a management capacity. So my level of exposure to that spectrum of people was different too, because if I had a customer come in, a mass affluent customer, right, who has wealth management, looking to do something that is outside of policy, right? They come in, I want to withdraw $30,000 in all $100 bills. How do you manage that? Or I want to do a $1.5 million wire transfer and my signing authority is $250,000. How do you manage that? Or they want checks made available immediately when you know the banks have their clearing process and their fund availability process. How do you expedite that? How do you release holds? How do you tell these people no? And so you're learning to manage risk and reward there. And so um, I had to develop not only a thicker skin as a younger 
black male manager in an environment that was dominated by affluent, you know, doctors, lawyers, people who had money just, you know, we don't know where their money came from, but they had wealth management and they would make that quick phone call and say, hey, I didn't get my way. I kid you not, I had a lady come in. She wanted, I don't remember the year, but let's say, let's use this year as an example. This year is 2020. She wanted 2021 pennies. I'm like, they're not even printed yet. Like they're not, there's no such thing. She's like, yes, there are. I kid you not. She wanted pennies for the next year, the year after. And she wanted them all brand new. And I'm like, we can't even like do that. She caused a whole scene. She called her wealth management person. It was a big deal. And, but it teaches you a lot too, because you learn that the people that have money kind of call the shots, right? I'm a manager. I'm making decisions. But if they call somebody who ends up calling somebody who's above me, then that's going to come down. They're going to say, hey, you know what? I can make that decision. And so you kind of learn about the banking industry and, and how the, you know, the banks make their money based off of the money that people have in there. Yeah. If somebody has a million dollars in all of their accounts and they're threatening to end their relationship and pull out that million dollars, well, there's going to be some movement made there. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Hey, that's, that's a powerful little tidbit right there. Oh, yeah. Because whenever we talk about building wealth and, you know, really just trying to get out of poverty, we don't talk about it just to spend it's more so, like you said, to be empowered. So that's power. Yeah, that, that's that's power. Yeah. Like if you can call somebody and say, "Hey, this bank is tripping. I need these pennies from 2021." Like, how do you even make this happen? <laughs> how do you combat that? I mean, how did I and deal with that situation? I had to explain what was asked of me. Right? I was just like, "It's impossible." You know, this is impossible. So you know, I don't. I would don't want us to lose the customer's relationship, but you know, what can you say to them? And so I did as a manager have to act with their wealth management partner as an intermediary in terms of being customer facing. Um, but because they had these people's phone number on speed dial, a lot of times I would push it back to them like, hey, this is your client. Like they're asking for something that is not possible. But in instances where it was possible, I think I had to learn to stick to my guns as a leader. Um, and I think, and I highlighted being young, being black and being male on purpose because the environment that I was in at, in this location was a predominantly uh, Jewish environment. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, they have high expectations around service, high expectations around, you know, getting what they want done. And so when they come in and they see a young black guy as a manager telling them, no, that's a shot to their ego more than anything else. And so even if they realize that what they're asking for from a practical perspective is maybe not so practical, they're going to stick to their guns, too, because they want to make a point. Mm -hmm. Right. They want to say, I'm going to make you know that I'm going to get my way. And so I had to learn to have a thick skin in that environment, too, because it was definitely undercurrents of, of a racist kind of entitlement as it relates to what it was that I was willing to sign off on or not sign off on. And there was many instances, too, where I stopped what would be potential fraud or what would be um, just a very sophisticated way of getting something done that shouldn't be done. Um, I'll use an example. Uh, Somebody dropped off a series of checks 
the checks totaled out to being over a million dollars, they wanted these funds available immediately. But the way that the bank's processing works, um, and I can only speak to this bank specifically, but I would imagine it's the same for most banks. They would take into your account your relationship. So how long have you had accounts with us? What kind of balances do you keep in your accounts? Do you have a regular direct deposit? And then what's your spending pattern? So if let's say you come off the street and your average account balance for the last six months was, let's call it $2,000, and you deposit a $25,000 check, a lot of times that check is not going to be made available next business day. It's probably going to take about a week because we got to make sure that you are you and yeah. that you're not doing anything shady. Because you ain't here maximum. Now all right. of a sudden you're popping out with big bank. <laughs> right. But even, I mean, even let's say, you know, you have $100,000 average on your account and you've had an extensive relationship with us, right? You have direct deposit coming in, several credit cards, home equity line of credit, your mortgage, all that. And you still come in with a million dollar check. That's a lot of money. And so it still has to go through that same process because we make a million dollars available for you tomorrow and that check is fraudulent or the account that the check is drawn in doesn't have that money. Now we take the loss because we made it available for you before doing our due diligence. And so that was a part of it for me too. And I had to learn the banking system, but I also had to learn consumer behavior. And then I also had to learn confidence in that I'm the manager, I'm the leader here. Regardless of what this person is saying or what their relationship is, if I sign off on it, that's me. That's my name. And so I take those experiences too, moving into my entrepreneurship, moving into personal money management, because if I tell somebody to open up a bank account and you know I'm giving them instruction around how to navigate that, I already know, based off of my previous experiences, how the bank is going to work. If I tell somebody to open a credit card, I already know what's happening in the background. And so I can speak to those uh, pieces of advice more intelligently than just, oh, I read this in a book, right? Because yeah. I experienced it, I lived it. Sure. And I'm glad you brought up helping people in that experience because I kind of want to go into that. So like, what was that process like for you? Because I know you said you kind of were just going around until you found your way into banking. So what was your, like, your process of learning financial literacy because I know your book's name is Financially Irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like somewhere. So I have to say that my knowledge is not just specific to banking. Um, as I was growing in the banking world career-wise, I had a personal interest in uh, financial, personal finance management. For me, because I grew up poor, right? I grew up on Section 8. I grew up, you know, benefiting from food stamps and, and for a short period of time benefiting from welfare. So for me, I was just like, you know what? My experience was so poor in that I don't ever want to experience that again. So as I started growing through banking from the technical industry perspective, I was learning on my own time personal finance. So I started with Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? Somebody gifted that book to me. And um, I was just like amazed, right? I was just like, oh man, like this opens up a whole new world for me. And then from there, I just, I consumed as much as I could. I went to um, seminars, free seminars, paid seminars through the Rich Dad program, watched YouTube videos, read books, just everything and anything that I could get my hands on so that I can have some level of familiarity. And it wasn't until, you know, I had started to share this information with other people, whether it be family, friends, peers, 
that I realized that there's a lot of people that don't know what I know. And so that's when I was just like, you know what, like, this is bigger than me. I need to start sharing this information. And then I started going down that path. And then I realized, wait, there's an opportunity to monetize this. Let's monetize it. And, um, you know, it's, I think the timing has been perfect with the uh, increased focus nationally around financial literacy and the importance of financial literacy and that schools are not teaching it. People are, you know, going through life, getting to, you know, adulthood, not knowing how to manage their personal finances, and then they're getting in trouble and they're trying, you know, just wandering, trying to figure out how to get out of that. And so I'm like, oh, I'm a person that could help. So I have a couple of answers and they're very high level answers, but um, different banks do different things. Banks will make money generally off of the fees that they charge, off of the uh, balances that they have in deposit. And then they're losing money on what they're paying in interest. But banks engage in the same types of transactions that a lot of individuals are engaging in, right? They exchange, they buy and sell securities. They're exchanging foreign currency and they're, they're making money off of their lending products. I think they're making a lot more of their money off of their lending products than they are of anything else. So when you talk about credit card interest rates, you talk about mortgage interest rates, you talk about home equity, any kind of business loan or line of credit, those things are generating significant revenue for banks. Um, so what they do is they take the money that you deposit, they don't keep it in the bank, they go and they invest that money that you deposit, they make their profit, and then they give you back the interest that they're offering, whatever that might be. With the current rate environment, it's very interesting because now, instead of them paying out, or rather, instead of them charging higher interest on loan products, right? Because you see the interest rates are going down and there's rumor that the interest rates may go down as low as zero. So now they're not making money on that, but they're also paying out more interest on like CDs, savings accounts. And so they're losing money. Man. And so the banks in this environment, the banks are like, what do we do? Like, how do we you know, hedge against the current rate environment? And so, again, there's significant revenue coming in through the fees that they have. And, you know, there some banks are kind of rearranging what their portfolios look like so that maybe they're not necessarily going in the red, but they're certainly not as profit positive as they would be in another rate environment where they can charge more and give out less. Yeah. So basically... Like what you're saying, with that, that zero percent interest, like just buzz my head, like because the Fed just just cut interest rates for the second time. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So I do want to speak to like the state of the economy right now because I don't think that's something we've got into since we spoke to uh, Malcolm Adams, and right now yeah. it's a very turbulent, yeah, turbulent, yeah, a lot of a lot of uncertainty right now in the economy. Did you add specifically? I just wanted to talk about like how that might play out and how that might affect things in the long run if they do go to zero percent interest. I can't speak intelligently as uh, as Malcolm did on the economy, but I can speculate, and uh, and it's not really something that I've thought about long terms. I don't. I think that would be a first, right? If we go into a zero interest rate environment, there's I think pros and cons to that. I think people would jump at the opportunity to acquire more. But the zero interest rate environment is not something that's going to last for very long. I don't think that it's something that's sustainable. Nah. Um, so then you go out until you kind of learn from the past, right? We look at 
the housing crisis, the last housing crisis, right? The loans were predatory and, you know, people were getting qualified for loans that they certainly couldn't afford to pay for. And then they ended up in a situation where now they're foreclosing across the board on all these properties. And so I think with a zero interest rate environment, there's, and I'm sure that there's a lot more intelligent people out there who are analyzing the risk and rewards of these decisions. But I'm, I'm thinking me as an investor, if I knew that there was assets that I can control for 0% interest for however long, like I'm jumping on that. And so what does that mean from a leverage perspective, right? You don't want to over leverage yourself and not be able to pay for it. But at the same time, like, you know, it's like the gold rush, right? Everybody is like, oh my God, this is the time to jump in. And I think those behaviors uh, from a consumer perspective, that's what creates bubbles, right? You know, when everybody is doing the same thing, it's just only so much that the economy or, you know, the environment could sustain before it just, it gets too much. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested to see too, you know, I was, I was saying off camera that this is the first time that I'll be able to actually participate in a recession environment. And definitely from an intelligent perspective, because back in 2008, I was 18 years old. Like I had no income. I had no money. And um, now it's just like, all right, like this is game time. Like game this, is what, this is what you practice it for. <laughs> you been talking about a recession for however long yeah, now? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Right, right, right. But um, I think too, like, you know, since we're talking about it and we're talking about the state of the economy, it's very important for people to understand that, you know, panicking is, is going to make the situation worse. Like panicking is the last thing that you want to do. Um, and, you know, we joked about the coronavirus and at the start of this. And we're talking about the economy and they certainly are intertwined, right? The coronavirus is shutting down whole businesses. And so people are not making money. But and then I was talking too earlier about I went to the supermarket and there's like nothing. There's nothing on the shelves. There's no canned goods. There's no toilet paper. There's no sanitizer. There's no cleaning supplies. There's no water. And so people are panicking. And I think some people are panicking in the frame of mind that they're preparing. And I think that it's important to prepare. I mean, I went to the grocery store to, to grab some dry, you know, dry food too. But, um, you know, that the hoarding of the toilet paper, like that's excessive. Or, you know, the, 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 hand, um, sanitizer. the hand sanitizer, like that's excessive. This is um, you bought like 17,000 yeah. <laughs> hand sanitizers. But you know human... So I can speak to, to personal finance, but I can speak to human psychology too, right? And you, you look at situations like Black Friday, right? Where people are going into Walmart and they're stampeding other people, like complete disregard for the other human beings there. They're fighting. They're, you know, ripping the end caps down and, and, and tearing away, you know, these things for deals. But now we're going into survival, people are starting to question whether or not they're going to be able to survive. And so they're trying to hoard water. They're trying to hoard supplies. But I know that there are whole populations of people spread across this country who subscribe to like this militia mob mentality where they're like, they've been preparing for, you know, doomsday forever. Anarchy. So they're like, yeah. So they're like, all right, like this is what we've been preparing for. And then you have a bunch of people in this country who are very comfortable. And those are the people that have to worry, right? Because their luxury comforts are going away. They don't know how to survive in that kind of a state. And so I was having a conversation with my mom earlier today. And she said, you know what? I think Black people, we're going to get through this because we know how to survive off of nothing. And she's like, the people that are used to, you know, going out and, and, and having their steak dinners and, you know, whatever, they're the ones who are going to panic because they don't know what to do. The debit cards and the um, let, let's say that the payment system gets shut down, they don't know what to do. 
right? And I went to the grocery store today and I bought like several bags of dry beans. But I was like, wow, these are still here. But, you know, who likes to, who cooks beans? Who cooks right. beans? Who cooks dry beans? Right? But I grew up poor. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, Beans and rice, I could do this every day. Like, I, I'll wait. I know some country shit. We yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from Louisiana, bro. Red beans and rice. That's, 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 yeah. like, I'm gonna be good. I'm gonna be good. Tuna, salmon, like I'm gonna be good. Oatmeal, all that. The hot water goes out. Cool. Like we know what to do. And so I talk about yeah, exactly. You're gonna make it shake for sure, for sure. But I talk about like my experiences growing up. And that poverty environment, like what we're talking about, boiling water, washing clothes in the sink, you know, the food and in those situations as, you know, reflection to where I've been able to grow to. But those things are not things that I forgot. So if I get into a space where I have to do that, I'm like, all right, cool. Like, this is normal. Yeah, second nature. Like, the flight of yep. flight going to kick in. Yep, yep. Know what to do. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.